So unless this story is going to end with the anti-registration forces getting nuked off the map, <laughs> what's going to happen here? Oh, boy. What the uh, hell was that? That was thunder. Or it was a sonic boom. I don't know. I was about to say, did the revolution start in Texas? What the hell? Well, you know, let's face it. When it when it when it comes, this is <laughs> gonna be ground zero. <laughs> that makes me feel sad. Hey, your attention, please. This. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today... Today is the day where I start something new. Today is the day where I'm going to start a whole new sort of brief miniseries. It's a three-part... Uh, see, I, there's, there's really no way to kind of divide it smaller than miniseries, but somehow even calling it a miniseries is... I don't know, in a weird kind of way, that just makes it feel like it's somehow bigger than, in fact, it is. So, but if you're looking at your at your calendar right now, what you've probably noticed is that we are coming closer, ever closer, to the release of Captain America Civil War. And so, I thought I'd tie Trennis Magnus Punch's reality in on that and talk a little bit about... Civil War. Now, the fact is, this the entire Marvel Civil War event is so big and all-encompassing, it affected pretty much the entire Marvel Universe. There's no way that even... I don't think I could cover everything, even if I were to devote all six episodes that I usually work with. If I Even if I were to devote all six episodes, I still don't think I could cover everything, but... I don't even have that to work with. I've only got three episodes to work with. So this time around, I'm going to be talking about the New Avengers Illuminati one-shot, which serves sort of as a lead-in to the main Civil War limited series. And then, of course, the main Civil War limited series itself. And in order to do all of this, I mean, the thought crossed my mind to do all of this stuff alone. And I reasoned, at least originally, that I could probably do that because this is the first Marvel event that I'd really invested myself in. There's some backstory to that, and I, well, hell, we'll probably get into it before too long. But my point is, this was really the first Marvel event that I ever read, like ever, from beginning to end. 
And so, in a weird kind of way, I, I regard Civil War as my entry point, shall we say, to the Marvel Universe. And so, this is a series that it's really sentimental to me, and... It, I've, I've been looking for a way to talk about this this series for a long time, and tying it in with the movie was literally the very best I could come up with, so you'll take what you can get, and you'll like it. But anyway, that's that stuff. So, like I say, the thought of doing this solo, like I say, it crossed my mind. But then I realized, you know what? This is a discussion that might better benefit from a different point of view, because as we get into it, if you've never read Civil War... What I think you're going to come to realize is that Civil War as a story is all about a different point of view. And it feels a little bit disingenuous with respect to the material to have only one voice. And so for a series like this, I got to tell you, really, I only had one choice as far as a co-host. And luckily, that person agreed to join in. So no preamble, no bullshit, no... Donald Trump style introduction to my co-host. I'm just going to welcome back to the show the host and co-founder uh, or rather the host and founder of Views from the from the Long Box, the co-host and co-founder of From Crisis to Crisis a Superman podcast, and the host and or co-host of podcast really entirely too numerous to mention here, but I think those are probably his two most famous podcasting outputs. I welcome back to this show for the first time since the last time, Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome back, uh, sir. How are you? Wait, we're, we're talking about Marvel Civil War? Yes. So, so I wasted all that time watching the Ken Burns miniseries on, on Netflix and reading all like the Shelby Foot books and going up to Stone... <sighs> okay. Well, if you want, we can kind of shift gears and talk about all that <laughs> stuff, but... I mean, this is a kind of an issue where I don't know if we need to have multiple points of view about slave ownership. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, no, thank you for having me. This is a this is an interesting exercise because I have very very mixed emotions about uh, the war of superhero aggression, uh, as I will now start <laughs> calling it, just because I think it's funny. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for having me. I appreciate this. Well, um, I'm happy to have you. And like I say, you really were my first choice uh, to talk about this. And maybe that's a good thing, too, because, you know, when I started looking around, at least the podcasters that I know, when I, when I started counting toes, I didn't really talk to anybody about it. But when I started counting toes, what I realized is there are just not very many in our fraternity who seem to enjoy this story or at least have... A lot to say about it. I mean, usually, I think probably the most succinct summary that most of them could probably offer, vis-a-vis -vis their opinions concerning the story, or uh, uh, you can usually boil most of them down to, it sucks. No, well, I, I think the Leylands did a pretty good job covering it. A motherfucker! Uh, they 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 talked about. Is there anything that I'm going to talk about that they haven't already talked about? Uh, believe me, we're all in that boat. Um, Andy likes to plant that flag first. He doesn't talk about it, but. Uh, I think secretly that uh, that kissed him. No, he and uh, he and Michael spent a couple episodes talking about it, and I know from just chatting with him the other day, and and you know because we talking a well talk, Facebook message. Uh, I don't know if you can consider that talking, but um, we we communicate rather uh, 
well, just about every day. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be talking with Trentus about Civil War. He's like, good luck. I will never, you couldn't pay me to read that again. So, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't a fan. So, well, during the um, the House of M show with Scott Rifen, mm-hmm. uh, he threw me a couple of curveballs, not least of which being that he enjoyed House of M. And I got the impression somewhere along the line that Rifen was just not a big House of M guy. And so he surprised me with that. But then he also surprised me with his, well, somewhat surprised me with his views of, uh, of Civil War. And again, it, it, it kind of, you, you could boil it all down to the, to, I don't like it, but he had a little bit more of a nuance to it than that, you know, mm-hmm. with respect to, you know, the way the characters were written and you know, basically the main conflicts of the story. And one of the things that I kind of had to acknowledge to myself, again, this was one of the reasons why I wanted to have a co-host was that there's a depth of perspective here that I simply lack because I mean, when you come right down to it, it is kind of a weird thing to have, you know, two big Superman fans talking about, um, the, not just a Marvel limited series, which is kind of weird all by itself, but you and I have done that before. But I think specifically, this may be the most ambitious thing that Marvel attempted easy in the 10 or 12 years leading up to it. And if history is anything to go by, the biggest thing they've attempted in the 10 or 12 years since. So I don't know, maybe secret like that new Secret Wars is arguably more ambitious, but I don't know. It, I, that's up to the history books, I suppose. Yeah, I um, I don't know if I'd put Secret Wars into this, into this category. I mean, it's huge. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, they've got like a thousand limited series connected to it, talking about just about you know every era of their publishing history. I have been picking it, picking up some of them. I have not read them yet. I'm just kind of waiting for everything to kind of settle out and read it all in one chunk. Uh, because I, I I feel like I should support the Peter David Hulk written stuff uh, as much as I possibly can. But this story, I think it, it came in like that perfect storm of the mid-2000s mm-hmm. in, in terms of comic books, because not only was Marvel doing this, but across the street, mm-hmm. as they often say, uh, DC was putting on Infinite Crisis at the exact same time. Yes. So there was like these two huge storylines going on in both books with extended crossovers. And and it was like it can, you know, it was really like the two tight. It would have been like if secret the first Secret Wars and Crisis were coming out at the same time. Mm. Uh, And even then, that's different because I really hesitate. I mean, Secret Wars, the original one, is a crossover in that characters crossed over together but it's not really a crossover comic book wise because outside of the lead in like last three pages of a couple titles it's not like secret wars you know there were no bannered this is a secret wars crossover issue Mm -hmm. it was pretty much in and of itself whereas crisis you know it was just you know had a bunch of those you know, crossover, you know, not every title was getting into it, but I think both a lot of them were, yeah, yeah, a lot of them were, but, but I think with infinite crisis and with civil war, I mean, they had so much civil war stuff attached to this that they had to create new mini series to, to, to get it all out there essentially. Uh, And that's, and that's huge. I mean, that's really big. I mean, I, I've got 
really mixed feelings about the event in total, but I can't doubt the excitement that was there when it was coming out. Nor can I, but, you know, at the time that it was coming out, I mean, I've been a DC guy my entire life, and so, as you can maybe sympathize, I had this sort of intellectual awareness of the fact that, yes, Secret, or sorry, Civil War, it, <clears throat> it is going on right now. But I really wasn't in on it, you know. I it, I was familiar and conversant with, I guess the the basic concept of, you know, what this thing was going to be. But it was just because of the fact that it's Marvel. It it was really just a, a, a as I saw it, it was basically six issues of I don't give a shit. So, and honestly, I mean, my feelings regarding Infinite Crisis really weren't much different. But one of the things that I remember thinking, at least at that time, was that this was in in a weird kind of way, this was DC and Marvel, but both doing what they do best. And Infinite Crisis, I think people can love or hate, you know, the aftermath of it. But really, it's a story about an existential conflict that's threatening the entire DC universe. So heroes and to some degree villains must unite in order to to combat this existential threat. And that's a story that I think DC does extremely well. That's kind of their bread and butter. On the other side of the pond, you had Civil War, and it's got war in the title. So, you know, right there, that's kind of a sort of a Marvel thing. Crisis is is always going to – or not always, but Crisis is kind of a DC thing, whereas war is kind of Marvel's thing. And rather than facing an existential threat, it's basically just a bunch of heroes fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought – this is I, – I, there's no way these two companies could have planned this thing out between the two of them. But sometimes, you know, it, it's kind of like when Hollywood, these different movie studios have kind of synergy with one another. And not necessarily positive way, but nevertheless, synergy with one another. Yeah, I, no. It's, it's like you got Armageddon and Deep Impact coming out in the same summer. Exactly that. And – or Wyatt Earp and Tombstone coming out with – what was it, like a year of each other or something, something like that? Something like that, yeah. And I, I would have to assume that these things aren't being done intentionally, but damned if that doesn't stop them from happening. So anyway, and and it just felt like this is, I guess, the comic book publishing equivalent. I mean, at this point, all we needed to to, I guess, round out the set would be, I don't know, Deathmate Volume Two coming out from <laughs> Image. And, you know, then we then we can make a clean job of it. So but anyway, this is as I say, this was kind of my entree into the Marvel Universe. And so as it happens, this is really the first time that I actually read uh, anything really from some of these characters. Like I had seen Captain Captain America around in a couple of other comics, never actually picked up a Captain America story, though. And I got to tell you, it was with uh, some amount of regret maybe that i discovered that civil war as a i guess as a movie prospect this wasn't going to be an avengers movie this was going to be a captain america movie now i haven't kept up with civil war movie news really at all certainly i don't know any any kind of spoilers or anything like that but i mean i guess what are your thoughts about this i mean should this have been captain america 3 or should this have been avengers 3 well Here's the funny thing about that. When after Avengers came out and was this giant success, 
the three movies, except with the exception of Thor, I don't remember it being a thing with Thor, but after, you know, Iron Man 3 came out and Captain America Winter Soldier came out, there was this thing from the hive mind that, well, why didn't Iron Man come help Captain America? And what, why, what, why didn't, why didn't like all the other heroes come to help, you know, Iron Man, ignoring the fact that, you know, there's Iron Man as a title, and then there's the Avengers as a title, and Iron Man's got his own thing going on, while Captain America's got his own thing going on, and Avengers is where they get to get together, and if everybody always showed up in everybody else's title, you wouldn't care about the characters, because it's just like, you know, every time Iron Man's in trouble, he calls on Cap or vice versa, I mean, why are you following Iron Man in the first place? It should just be the Captain America and Iron Man book. And it drives me up the freaking wall, actually, because it's just like, do you not understand how this works? I mean, you know, and, and, and some of the newbies, I would understand it because maybe they just don't get that this is how comics work. Mm-hmm. But like people who should know better, I'm just like, why are you complaining about this? So when it was announced that this was going to be Civil War, you know, the, the, the Civil War adaptation... I was just like, okay, good, because then I don't have to wait as long for an Avengers film. And second, there are times where all of the characters pop up in Captain America's title. I mean, Iron Man and Cap had a pretty big uh, falling out during the whole Steve Rogers quits and John Walker becomes Captain America storyline. So, you know, if, if this is what they're going to do, then all's the better, because now... I get to have my cake and eat it too. I get to have a big Avengers film in 2015. And then in 2016, I get to see all these characters on the big screen again. And, you know, in a Captain America film and it, and it just, it feels right to me that this is happening. I I don't have a problem with it, but I guarantee you, I'm willing to put money down on the table that the very I want to see the Venn diagram of the people that complained that, Iron Man didn't show up in Captain America compared to the people that are going to complain that everybody was in a Captain America movie and see how that kind of sorts itself out. Because I guarantee you it's just going to be a solid circle instead of two <laughs> circles intersecting. Yeah, instead of being the MasterCard logo, it's just yeah. one circle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so maybe I'm cynical, but uh, I'm down for it. I really am. I haven't been like The Force Awakens. I've been, you know you know, seeing like the big things that you can avoid, but I have not been following uh, every little thing, uh, which is odd because it was filmed right near me. So you figure I would, but you know, when, when you see the call for extras and they just want a bunch of Asian people, you're like, well, that doesn't fit me. So I guess I'll just be sitting this one out. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I always thought that you, you, there, there was a missed opportunity there, sir, with a, uh, <laughs> A uh, discrimination lawsuit. So, whatever. I don't like that kind of party. <laughs> <laughs> well, look. I mean, the fact is, in recent days, you know, I've seen people make similar arguments with respect to Supergirl, and I don't want to get too far off topic here. But, I mean, I guess I don't get it. I mean, you know, there are different things that would motivate Supergirl being left to her own devices in a shared universe, versus what I think would motivate a Captain America story, and he's handling, let's face it, some very serious problems, more or less all on his own. I mean, when you think about it, 
dealing with the Red Skull, by all rights, that that has implications for S.H.I.E.L.D., for Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. I would say arguably the Fantastic Four. And somehow those are just routinely accepted as Captain America stories. And, you know, the criticism... I, not maybe not criticism, but maybe quibble is the better way to put it that people have had with Supergirl and that, that I've seen in the past couple of weeks really is, you know, she's facing these life or death situations that she is at this stage in the game, not completely e- equipped to deal with where Superman. And I guess my answer to that is number one, they clearly don't want to show Superman on this show for whatever reason, they won't or they can't. Number two, it kind of overlooks the fact that, you know, in the Silver Age, Superman, he hung out with Supergirl a fair amount, but by and large, he was pretty much content to let her meet whatever destiny lay in store for her Uh by herself, number one, and then number two, on her own terms. And, you know, you can't really shake the sensation when you read those those old Silver Age stories that Superman was kind of protecting Supergirl from having to grow up inside of his legacy. Here she had a chance to sort of grow and blossom and mature in her own right, rather than always have to live up to his legend. And that, I think, is really... Like I say, there's, there's I think, the kind of the mechanical explanation of the fact that they can't or they won't show Superman and that's just the rule that they're that they're working with but I do think there's honesty with the material uh, material here but either way you you slice it I mean that's that's a really that's always struck me as a very weird criticism you know because you can you can level that criticism about comics and that doesn't seem to bother you so I don't know I, I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It's like, where's Superman? Well, it well the show is called Supergirl, so I want to see Supergirl. I'm not seeing this to see Superman. You know, I'm, I'm content with how they've handled it, and the, the, the five seconds he showed up in Shadow, handled very well, I think, you know, was fine. But why would you want to follow a show where the main character is constantly getting bailed out by the more popular or the older cousin, essentially. Why am I following this show? That, that, that does nothing for Supergirl as a character. The point is, is that she's, car- like you said, she's carving out her own de- de- density. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, she's carving out her own destiny and she's, you know, she's making mistakes and she's, Oh, I'm sorry. I just punched my dog in the face. Um, and she's, um, she's making mistakes and she's learning from them and she's growing as a hero. And I've just been loving the show. You know, it's been giving me so much of what I've wanted out of this type of, you know, from the, from a character wearing an S on their chest, essentially. So, you know, every time someone's just like, where's Superman? I mean, to be fair, the other side of the equation where everyone's just like Superman shouldn't have a single thing to do with it are almost as infuriating. Uh, just because, you know, I, I, I guess if, you know, if, if you have one group, a, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so their opposite must rise up and I'm just like, whatever, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't pay attention to the arguments. I know they're there and they make me sad, but yeah, I just, I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. Uh, I don't either. And <clears throat> anywho, so I just wanted to throw all of that stuff out there. I I could do a show about just my thoughts on Supergirl. I mean, 
there's a show out there that everyone else is seeing that I'm just not. But uh, maybe that's a, a conversation for another time, perhaps. But anyway, uh, to get into, I guess, at least the beginnings of our conversation here, uh, the first the first comic book that we've got on the docket, I think you could start the Civil War limited series or the Civil War event and stick primarily with the main limited series. And I think that's probably where the meat and potatoes of the story really does unfold. Any good story, I think, needs to be pretty much self-contained. This is actually one of my criticisms about Star Wars Episode Three to kind of tie it in with stuff that you're doing right now, is that that's really not a self-contained story when you think about it. By and large, Civil War is. But if you want, I guess, to go deeper with it, you've got the ability to do so. This is one of those crossovers that had so fucking many tie-ins that, like you were saying, Marvel had to create one-shots, they were having to create limited series, they were having to do all of this stuff in addition to all of the uh, all of the tie-ins that were happening with the monthly titles, such as Ms. Marvel. And this is just a really huge story. And in my opinion, you know, you you can fairly well use as your introduction to to Civil War as a I guess as an event or as a story, however you want to look at it. This is a one-shot entitled The New Avengers Illuminati. And that basically what it's supposed to do is set up, I guess, some of the context. There's really little in the way of, I guess, narrative developments to tie this to Civil War. This is more, I guess, characterization, worldview. Things like that start getting defined here that come into play very heavily, I think, in the Civil War limited series. But to kind of get down to brass tacks, this is written by Brian Michael Bendis, artist is Alex Maleev, color uh, colorist is Dave Stewart, letterer is VC's Chris Eliopoulos. There you go. That's the one. And Stacy just got here. Hi. Say hello. Hello. Hey, Stacy. Bailey says hey. <laughs> Don't call him that. <laughs> Okay, now she's just staring at me. Yeah, I, I I could hear her before, so obviously, unless she was whispering to you, she wasn't saying anything. <laughs> yeah, and how do you? That's that that's Greek, I guess. Eliopolis. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, he's been drawing. Uh, he's been doing artwork for all of the Brad Meltzer, uh, little biography children's books, mm-hmm. uh, that he's been putting out lately. Okay, now this I did not know. All right, well. Assistant editors, Molly Laser and Aubrey Sitterson. Associate editor is Andy Schmidt. Editor is Tom Brevoort. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casano. There's a shitload of editors here. Uh, publisher is Dan Buckley. Now, I, I don't want to go necessarily, I, I guess, into like pornographic detail in terms of talking about this issue. But at the same time, I mean, we we do need to acknowledge that, yes, in fact, this is going on. It's basically... A group of characters, specifically Iron Man, Reed Richards, Black Bolt, Prince Namor, Doctor Strange, and the Black Panther, for a while anyway, they get together to talk turkey with respect to the Marvel Universe and goings-on therein. 
And I guess in in the shadow of the Kree Scroll War, Iron Man's point is, guys, we we could have done more here, possibly even prevented this. It's really our fault that things ever got as bad as they did. What we need to do is just sort of form a kind of a watchdog committee. One might say an Illuminati to share information. Head threats like this off at the pass, because let's face it, push comes to shove. When messes like this happen, it's going to be our issue to deal with. There's some back and forth. Prince Namor acts pretty much like a dick, as he's wont to do. And they ultimately decide on a very loose information sharing program with the proviso, what we talk about stays here. Don't even tell your friggin' spouse about this. Keep it to yourself. That leads to the uh, to the aftermath of uh, House of M, where we finally start seeing a little bit of cracks in their their sort of union here. Tony Stark opines that we're getting to we the Marvel Universe is getting to a point in time when things are starting to get tense. The people, the man on the street, doesn't have the same level of trust and, for that matter, the same level of affection for the superhero community as once they did. And a Superhuman Registration Act has been drafted, and it's basically sitting in somebody's office drawer, waiting for a moment when some superhero or a team of superheroes, all with the absolute best of intentions, royally fuck up. When that happens, this bill is going to get passed virtually unanimously through Congress. It's going to get signed into law. Shit's going to go down. Some people will go along with the bill. Some people won't. A civil war is going to ensue. Teammates are going to fight teammates. People that, uh, that have fought alongside each other, bled, died alongside each other, are now going to be fighting each other. It's going to be hell on earth, cats and dogs living together, Mass hysteria. Unless we get on, we get on board with this right now, we get involved with the implementation of this thing and diffuse the tension before it becomes a full blown crisis. All of this is Captain. Sorry, this all of this is Iron Man's point. Other members of the committee, though, have different ideas. Reed Richards seems to be pretty much on board with with Iron Man. Doctor Strange, however, less so. Prince Namor, he doesn't have a single fuck to give because, hey, this is a surface world problem. You guys deal with it. And already we see this prophecy of Tony's coming to pass. And it and pretty much the issue ends with the Illuminati, such as it was, pretty much disbanding. So I guess what were your thoughts on all of this? I mean, I, I guess – well, actually, I'm not even going to try to embellish it or put words in your mouth. What were your thoughts on this, sir? The um, the writing is really engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bendis is good with talking heads. He will always be good with talking heads. Uh, there was some action in this, but this wasn't an action piece. This was a bunch of 
mostly just a bunch of guys sitting out around a room, you know, having a debate essentially. Yes. And he manages to keep that going and keeping, you know, I was, I was rereading it last night and I was just like, wow, this is, this is really well done. I don't know if everybody's spot on with who they are, but you know, there's an internal consistency to the story itself that I, I, I could get behind. Uh, there's also this nagging feeling though, that, okay, we're going down a road we may not want to go down. I mean, it's all well and good to think, well, what could happen, you know, if this sort of thing happened, but actually implementing that is another thing entirely. Sometimes you just, you know, any story is worth telling, but do you want to devote the time and energy to tell that story? Uh, Having said that, since this is the direction Marvel went in, this is a very strong way to begin it. Uh, my only real, like, holy crap, you guys are just wrong for doing this moment was the moment where they're voting on whether or not to shoot the Hulk into space. Now, real world thing is they don't want the Hulk involved in Civil War because he it, it's like it's like Alex Ross and Mark Wade didn't want the Martian Manhunter involved in kingdom come because he's a, uh, you know, he's got all the powers of Superman and captain Marvel. So he's kind of, he would tip the balance of power in the story they wanted to tell the Hulk being there would fundamentally change how this story was told. But the way they went about getting rid of him, you know, it, it's, it's all well and good to shoot him into space. I think it's stupid led to a pretty decent Hulk story, but I, I was just like, really? But it's just the argument they have to get him there. Bendis has it in his head that the Hulk should be treated as this threatening engine of mass destruction, mm-hmm. whereas for the majority of his existence, while there was a lot of destruction, he was always a heroic figure. And once you start throwing in that so many people died, including a dog. And if you're going to tell an audience that a dog died, you're trying to get them against whoever killed the dog. I mean, that's just that's just basic storytelling to me. Um, <laughs> really cheap, too, yeah. <laughs> it, it is cheap. It's just like, well, he killed uh, two kids and a dog. It's just like, I don't want to think of the Hulk killing a kid, you know? You know, he had a rampage. That happens. You know, uh, this is where I think Greg Pak uh, came in and kind of tried to turn the tide a little bit by saying that in the background at all times, Robert Bruce Banner is working the odds and kind of nudging the Hulk into a direction that when he does something, he is taking into account the number, even though it seems mindless, there is an intelligence behind it trying to minimize not the loss of property, but the loss of life. So like the the Ang Lee school of, of Hulk. mm -hmm. So once you get into that ultimate Hulk, take on the character which i thought was an abomination no pun intended i i I, it it just (laughs) it bugs me and it takes me out of the story however i kind of liked the debate that came from it and namor being the one to kind of stand up and go what is wrong with you people namor is great throughout this entire thing because i thought tony stark as well intentioned as he was throughout the entirety of civil war was just dead wrong on so many things that I'm kind of glad that there's somebody of, of Namor stature to kind of look at him dead in the eye and go, you're an idiot and you're always going to be an idiot. And I, my, one of my favorite moments is, uh, 
Iron Man going, yeah, 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 you're willing to fight. You know, we're all warriors. And Namor looking at him go, you're a warrior. I'm a king. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, okay. So Tony had something that he thought was going to be his, you know, drop the mic moment. And Namor had a response right away. <laughs> Very good. Uh, my other favorite moment was when Doctor Strange was out. <laughs> He's just so done. He's just like, no, this is a terrible idea. This is the worst idea ever. And when you really think about it, trying to be so real world with the Marvel Universe and superheroes in general, I think, is kind of wrongheaded because the point is it's not the real world. Right. You don't want to – once you start staring at it, you're going to start seeing – you're going to, uh, as Scott Rifen would say, you're going to start picking the fridge. And then it takes all the fun out of it. So whenever I think of Civil War, and we'll be getting into this more as we go on, there is always like this, you know, this, you know, internal debate where it's just like, well, how well was the story told compared to this other side was like, they shouldn't have even done this in the first place. So I don't know. I liked the special. I wasn't really all that hot on the art. Yes. Um, I, I don't. Bendis has this thing with Malieve that he loves him and Malieve and Bendis on Daredevil all day long. Malieve and Bendis on the big heavy hitters of the Marvel universe, not the best idea. Yeah. Alex Malieve always struck me as one of those artists that he could draw uh, a hell of an issue of say alias or something like that. You mm -hmm. know, where you have these, you know, deep, dark atmospheric shadows and it's almost like the shadows have a life of their own. And it's a lot of people talking and all of this sort of stuff. The guy, and I'm not saying this to denigrate him or insult him or anything like that, but to me, a comic book artist needs to be able to draw an action scene. I mean, it's all well and good to be able to, like you were saying, to, to do talking head type stuff. That's fine. Ultimately, though, this is sort of an action type of format. And this is one of the core essentials of your job description of what you're doing as superhero type comics. And what you have is a uh, is an is an artist who can, like I say, I mean, he can draw one hell of an establishing shot. Not so good on those big poster type of pinup glory, glory shot type of types of moments. And there's this moment where, you know, to wit, there's this moment where Prince Namor basically knocks Iron Man pretty much out of the friggin' building. I mean, he, he really got waylaid there and it, there's just this stiffness to it. It's some mm -hmm. cramped or something like that. And I realized that, you know, Joe Casada or Scott McDaniel or one of those types of artists that can do like those really extreme crazy angles. Maybe they don't, they just don't have enough hours in the day to draw everything in the friggin' universe. And that's fine. But God's sake, man, I mean, I don't know that he was necessarily the artist to draw that stuff. I mean, you kind of have to tailor your story to the artist that's telling it. And in a case like that, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, if Daredevil has to get into a kung fu fight with somebody, Alex Maleev is just not your man. Uh, there's, um, there's really no nice way to say it. And again, th there's also no way to say it without sounding kind of like a dick. I don't want to come off that way. No, I mean... <sighs> I don't necessarily want the guy hanging my drywall to do my electrical work. Cause that's not where that may not be where his talents lay. I mean, you do have the Jack of all trades that can do everything. 
but usually people in an artistic field tend to find their niche and work within that. You know, Perez does big, huge superhero stuff, mm-hmm. does it really well, does great action. So does Byrne. So does Grummet. So does Jurgens. And, you know, if you're going to look at more contemporary, and I can say this because he, you know, drew Ultimate Spider-Man for so many years, you oh, know, yeah. Mark Bagley. Yeah. Mark Bagley can draw the hell out of an action scene. Yes, he you can draw the hell out of two people sitting around talking. I would have actually been interested to see what he would have done with this script. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like Bendis was, uh, was, and probably still is at a point in his career where he can kind of pick and choose his artists mm-hmm. uh, and listening to his interviews through word balloon. I get the sense that that's what he does. He, he, he knows who he wants to draw something uh, ahead of time. So, and, and he, he, let's face it at this point, Brian Michael Bendis was the darling of the Marvel universe. You know what, you know, yeah, alias was good. And it, you know, lasted 30 some odd issues, but ultimate Spider-Man was a juggernaut and then new Avengers comes along and it's even bigger. Yeah. So, you know, he was kind of given the keys to the kingdom. So he probably would have said, I want Malieve to draw this. And there you go. Well, I tend to agree. And, you know, Jeff Loeb is, he was really the first writer that I can remember who really commented on this, that he, tailors whatever story it is that he's writing to who to whoever is going to draw it and so what you could take from that is that he's not going to draw or rather he's not going to write a an ed mcginnis script the same way that he would a jim lee script or a a michael turner script i mean it's there's there are going to be different emphases in each and when you think about it i mean that is so friggin logical you know and I, I, I completely understand that, but uh, it, it just kind of leads you down this sort of rabbit hole of you're kind of putting your artist in a position where he doesn't have to grow. I mean, yeah. Alex Maleev is a little bit of a rock star for reasons that, I mean, if you just look at his skills, I guess, in to, in their totality, he's got a level of rock star status that, Again, I'm not saying this to insult the man. I, he's got a status, though, that I just don't think he's earned. I mean, people can love or they can hate Brian Michael Bendis. I personally am I, – I consider myself to be a fan. But people can love or hate that guy's work. But I don't know. Ultimately, things like that, they really do come down to preference. When it comes to you know artists and stuff, though, I mean, they really should be – they should always be growing. They should always be stretching themselves. And if you ask me, you've I my God's honest opinion is you've got no business working for Marvel Comics as a as an artist if you can't draw a sports car or a skyscraper or a squirrel or something like that. I mean, you need to be able to draw everything because you never know what you'll be called upon to draw next. And what we're basically telling artists like Maliv is, hey, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to grow. People like you just the way you are. Don't change. And I've just I've got problems with that. I mean, where would we be as comics fans if somebody had told John Byrne back in 1973, hey, guy, what you're doing is fine. You don't you don't need to change anything. You're already perfect. Shit, I'm I'm halfway convinced that's what ruined Rob Liefeld. You know, if, if that guy had had just like three or four or five more years of paying his dues and having to truly earn his spot at the table, I truly believe he would be a better 
more competent artist, and I think his work would be better as a result. And as it stands right now, we'll never know. I just I don't think that I, I don't think that's a healthy mindset. I don't think that's good for comics. Yeah, he. Um, one of the things I remember listening to an interview with Loeb at one point, and he's just like, "You don't ask Jim Lee to draw something in the kitchen, uh, but he'll draw the heck out of the Batmobile." And I was like, "Do you really want to be that?" I mean, okay, I understand that comics are a commercial medium. You know, they're they're not they're telling stories, but they're also moving units. That's that's the point of their gig. But it always struck me that where is, you know, Jim Lee seemed to be this dedicated person, right? You know, you listen to interviews with him where he was just like, you know, I spent an entire year teaching myself and I learned and I got better and blah, blah, blah. At what point did he stop and go, eh, I'm good. I don't, I don't have to go further. This is what people want to see. So it's all I have to do. 1992. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, apparently my dogs agree with you. Um, Come on. Father-in-law's outside doing crap, so... There. But seriously, I mean, you know, if you... It seems that as an artist, if you're... If you have a weakness, you would want to tackle that weakness head-on, you know? Like, you would want to be like, well, I can't draw a kitchen. By the end of the year, you know, like, freaking kitchen mate is going to be hiring me to do all their, you know, box art or whatever. So... Or maybe it's just, you know, I can make, I'm making money no matter what I do, so why should I grow even further? Well, I'm, I, I, all I can say is I'm sure glad Tom Grummet, or sorry, Tom Grummet, Mark Bagley, the two are one, in my opinion, but uh, I'm sure glad Mark Bagley doesn't have that attitude about drawing shit in kitchens, because how many amazing, really dramatic and powerful scenes took place in Aunt May's Kitchen and Ultimate Spider-Man? Oh, there you go. I mean, well, and his style changed. You you look at his stuff from 1993, 1994, mm-hmm. and then you look at Ultimate Spider-Man, and it you you recognize that it's the same artist, but fundamentally things got so much better. Yes, in his ability to tell a story visually. So and and really you have to with a Bendis script. So, mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, we really do need to move along to yeah. the, the uh, limited series. But before we do, you know, I guess one of my parting questions for you in all of this is there's a little bit of a pink elephant in the room with the Illuminati special in as much as it, it presents a pretty significant retcon in that we're supposed to believe that the Illuminati existed as, <clears throat> as far back as the aftermath of the Kree scroll War. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be agreed upon that, no, this was something that somebody came up with circa 2005, 2006, and it's now being retconned into the past. Now, I guess as far as retcons go, how persuasive is this? This one shot is fine. The limited series that happened later is, I think, where the problems really started getting bigger you know it's all well and good to say oh they've been meeting in secret and you just didn't know because then you're doing all of the mental gymnastics there you know you know me as a fan i can sit there if i want to 
and be like, well, okay, so this works and that works and that works. Okay, I can kind of fit it there. And so in your own head canon, it works. When they start telling you how it fits into it, that's where I think the problem really began. You know, just the idea that that Tony Stark uh, called this meeting and, uh, you know, a bunch, everybody but Black Panther, Black Canary, Black Panther was on board, uh, who had probably one of the best drop the mic moments in this book. He's just like, walk away from this now because it's not going to end well. And well, he was right. Yes. So, but it, it just, because they didn't show every single meeting, it was easier to deal with in this special. So as of this special, I am okay with it. Um, later on, not so much. Okay, fair enough. Well, I guess my only real objection to it is it works great in the special, like you were saying, but I guess as an ongoing thing, on sub sub on some kind of a subconscious level, I think anybody who reads this is going to read future Marvel crossovers and think to themselves, why didn't the Illuminati do something? And there are times when you can introduce an innovation into your universe. And I think it actually works to its betterment, you know, but there are also instances where, you know, you really got to be careful because what you end up with is a situation that is now unnecessarily complex. And so for a story like Take Fear itself, for example, I don't know what the the members of the Illuminati, if, assuming they were even on speaking terms with one another by that point, but assuming that they were, I truly do not know what they could have done to A, know about goings on with fear itself as an event and then be prevent it. But there are other stories, you know, let me think, uh, siege or maybe Avengers versus X-Men or other things where, you know what? The Illuminati might've had a little something, something to say about that. And who's to say that maybe they couldn't have, have, have done something to prevent things from getting so out of control and it, at this point, you, you now now not only do you have to tell a good story, you now have to figure out why it is that the watchdog of the Marvel Universe, these self-appointed badasses that have taken it upon themselves to kind of regulate, mm, they were asleep at the wheel. And it's it's just an unnecessary complication going forward. As you say, works great in the story, but what it leads to is not always necessarily going to be to the material's benefit. So well, going with that and going backwards, how the heck does Infinity Gauntlet happen? How does uh, Secret Wars? How does, you know, where were where were they and all the and they would eventually go and explain those and again that's where the real problems began. You know, it, it, every once in a while a writer will come up with an idea that is fantastic in their head but the law of unintended consequences makes it kind of fall apart, you know, as it plays out. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like, well, what happens when you reveal Superman's secret identity? You know, yeah. that's a story, but is it a story you really want to tell in an ongoing, in a universe where there is an ongoing narrative going on? Is your idea to sell units, sell a lot of comics all at once, 
is that going to completely screw over the guys that come in after you? And, you know, I, I think the hallmark starting with new Avengers and Avengers disassembled, I think the hallmark of the Marvel universe, which led to a lot of books getting sold and a lot of people getting into the Marvel universe. But I think when you look on it back on it now, you're like, wow, that was problematic is that they were so concerned with the moment. Mm -hmm. And that moment could be like a story that lasts over several years. So, but they're so concerned with that, that they're not thinking, well, what's, you know, they're not playing chess, they're playing checkers. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I don't know. It's, <clears throat> it, it's just a, a unnecessary complication, honestly. And so, anyway, and that's maybe about as far into the Illuminati as we need to, as we need to get, at least for right now. So I, I guess as far as the uh, limited series. Now, do you have anything else about the Illuminati one shot, nope. or are you ready for the limited series? Uh, let's 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 get into it. Okie dokie. All right. So then, this is Civil War number one, written by uh, Mark Miller. Uh, pencils by Steve McNiven. I'm going to have a hell of a lot to say about him before this is all said and done. Inker is Dex, uh, Dexter Vine. Colorist is Maury Hollowell, and. <clears throat> As I say, I mean, there's so much that relates to, I guess, the Civil War story that it, it, it's kind of hard to it, it's kind of hard to sort of limit it all down to just one thing because there's so much that's even hinted at just in this limited series that you know I could get slap happy just going through all all of that stuff. What's not being shown, but I guess as far as what you know what is being shown. Civil War, to get into the summary, Civil War follows the implementation and consequences of the Superhuman Registration Act, a legislative bill which requires the mandatory registration of any person based in the United States with superpowers. The act arises due to public pressure for accountability following a series of superhuman-related events causing significant damage and death within the Marvel Universe, such as an attack on Manhattan in reprisal for Nick Fury's Secret War, and the Hulk's rampage in Las Vegas, which resulted in the death of 26 people and one dog. When the, when the mutant population was drastically reduced in the aftermath of M-Day, itself caused by a mutant, anti, uh, mutant hysteria from extremist groups, which itself was caused uh, a majority of the remaining mutants, known as the 198, to relocate to the Xavier Institute and raised public support for the proposed act. Public sentiment towards superheroes plummets after an incident in Stamford, Connecticut, in which the New Warriors, which is to say a group of young superheroes in the focus of a reality TV series, botch an attempt to apprehend a group of supervillains in a quest for better ratings. In the ensuing fight, the villain Nitro uses his explosive powers to destroy several city blocks, including an elementary school at the epicenter, resulting in the death of over 600 civilians, 60 of whom were children and an unknown number of which were dogs, with just Speedball of the New Warriors and Nitro himself surviving. Although many high-profile superheroes assisted in the relief and rescue effort, there were a number of isolated revenge attacks and support for the Registration Act rises. The prospect of registration divides the superhero community right down the center, with Tony Stark, a.k.a. <clears throat> Iron Man, 
who'd previously done all in his power to halt the act, becoming the pro-registration figurehead, and Captain America leading the anti-registration group. Iron Man, along with Mr. Fantastic and Henry Pym, argue that the changing political landscape means that resisting the law is pointless and that it's completely reasonable for heroes to have proper training and oversight, whereas Captain America, alongside Luke Cage and the Falcon, argue that heroes require secrecy in order to protect aspects of their normal life, such as family members and dogs, and to allow them to act in whatever means are needed against threats which the ordinary emergency services simply cannot cope with. Although nominally a UN agency, SHIELD assumes the brunt of enforcing the act under the under acting director Maria Hill. The opposing sides initially trade propagandistic victories with the anti-registration heroes continuing to fight supervillains, leaving them restrained to be found by the authorities whilst the pro-registration side attempts to locate and arrest any superperson who is not registered. The first major coup for either side comes when Iron Man convinces Spider-Man to publicly reveal his secret identity. A secret, I should say, which Spider-Man has worked hard to maintain, because this is not the ultimate universe. During this time, many tie-in titles concerned with the war's impact on the wider Marvel Universe are, are published. And as I say, we're not going to get too much into, the, uh, into those things, uh, at least right now, except to say that they exist and they bear... I think heavily, but not necessarily indispensably on this story. Anyway, so a bunch of people fight and beat the shit out of each other, which, and I'm kind of trying to cut to the chase here because I've been running my mouth so much. All of this winds up with the secret Avengers and their allies reaching Rikers Island penitentiary. Betrayed by Tigra, they're met by Iron Man and the pro-registration forces and a number of supervillains who are being controlled by nanites. Hulkling uses his shape-shifting ability to assume the role of Henry Pym and release the incarcerated heroes, leading to an all-out battle between the two sides. During the fight, Cloak teleports the battle to the center of New York City, where the pro-registration forces are joined by the now-fixed Thor clone who caused so much trouble earlier, and also Captain Marvel, while Namor leads an army of Atlanteans to, assess, to assist the secret Avengers. Captain America targets Iron Man, whose armor has been compromised by the Vision. As Captain America is about to deliver a finishing blow, several non-superpowered emergency service personnel hold him back. Wishing to avert further property damage and bloodshed, Captain America surrenders, marking the end of the Civil War. Two weeks later, the 50-state initiative is launched and the Mighty Avengers assemble as a team. Tony Stark is appointed Director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Maria, Maria Hill gets demoted to deputy status. Some heroes move to Canada, while some stay underground, including the new Avengers. Many of the secret Avengers were given amnesty by the government, while Captain America gets placed in jail. Captain America is later shot to death by Crossbones and Sharon Carter, the latter being hypnotized by Dr. Faustus, outside the courthouse on the day of his arraignment. The end. So I just did a whole lot of talking there, trying to summarize really the entire limited series, so... Bailey, what did you think? And, and I, actually, Ed, let me interrupt you. Before you get started on this, I just want you to know that in the past, I've always tried to operate a sort of nonpartisan type of podcast. It's kind of hard, or it might be hard to do 
a, a show about Civil War without getting at least somewhat partisan. Yeah. So I'm I'm taking the leash off. Anything that you want to say, say it. And we'll just the consequences are going to be the consequences. But let's not worry about that right now. Just say whatever you have in mind. All right. Well, just operating on a, on a pure story level, uh, there are the idea of the Superhero Registration Act and the idea that there would be factions within the superheroic community that either agree or disagree with it, leading to them having a conflict, I think is worth having. And I think we're going to see that play out in the next Captain America film. It's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to it. I want to see how they handle it. Unfortunately, it was given to a writer that has all the subtlety of a knee to the groin. Uh, (laughs) At some point, Mark Miller, who wrote some of the best Superman stories in the late 90s in the Superman Adventures comic, which I loved, Mm Mm-hmm decided screw that i'm just gonna tell big flashy stories where there's controversy because that's uh, essentially that's where the money is i'm not gonna fault him for that because i don't fault people for making money i i just don't you know if you can find a way to do it legally and people are willing to pay you you know god bless you that's the american dream as far as i'm concerned you know working within the system and convincing people to give you money for something that is ultimately I mean, when you think big picture, comic books are not necessary for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, right. Some would argue that point. Um, so you you have on one side you have Iron Man, and you have on the other side Captain America. So, kudos for making Captain America the counterculture figure in this, and Iron Man the person that wants to work within the system. Because again, big picture, looking at this from a thousand feet, that's an interesting idea. Because you would, you know, everybody has it in their head, though, that, you know, that Cap is this, you know, establishment figure. And those people have obviously never read a lot of Captain America. They're just assuming it's like Superman. They just assume things about the character because of who the character is named. However, the the wheels come off the rail, the train, like really quickly in this, in that you have this whole thing with the, the, the new warriors at the very beginning and... Ultimately, they're not the ones that blow up the school. They're the ones that played a part in it. I'm not going to argue with that. But at the end of the day, Nitro is the one that made the decision to ignite himself. However, as Andy Leyland pointed out in his coverage, Nitro is almost completely forgot is completely forgotten within the context of the main series, like immediately. Everything is the superhero's fault. And with that, you have all these ham-fisted scenes of characters like acting all melodramatic. And, and there's all the sound and fury signifying absolutely nothing. The mother that spits in Tony Stark's eye. I totally get where she's coming from. She has just lost her son. But I don't think... A grieving mother is the person you want to hang your domestic uh, programs on. I'm sorry. As as upset as she is, and, you know, to be fair, the point is there are people out there that have all these powers that might be a danger. But again, you're starting to look at it too closely. And it seemed like what they want is that anybody with with superpowers should join this organization 
and become cops, essentially. And what that leads to at the end of that road is a homogenization of a universe where either you're an outlaw character being chased by the other characters or you're somebody working within the system. And that just gets boring. I, 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 I'm more of a fan of people getting to operate the way they want to operate. But beyond all of that, when you the, the, the wheels come completely flying off the train right there at the end of the issue, when Maria Hill tries to take down Captain America for no other reason than he disagreed with her. If you look at that scene, he has done nothing to raise his fist towards her or any of her people. He's just basically like, I'm not doing what you want to do, so she has everyone point their weapons at him and start a fight. That's that's stupid. That's just that's just so wrong-headed. I mean, it's exciting and dramatic, but at the same time, it doesn't make a lick of sense to me that that's how that scene would end. Because it seems like Steve would just be, you know... Steve Rogers has a history of when he doesn't like something, he goes off and just does his own thing anyways. Yes. Without, you know, when Steve Rogers gave up being Captain America, you know, the the, the committee that, that was telling him he had to either join with them or, you know, join me or die, um, <laughs> they didn't, like, have, like, all of their armed figures, like, point their weapons at him afterwards. So you have this giant fight scene that didn't need to happen, followed by a dumb line of language, which Joss Whedon, I think, poked fun at in the uh, <laughs> Avengers Age of Ultron. Yes. Leading to a scene where a senator is like, and then he took the guy out for a cheeseburger right afterwards. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. But then you really get into the meat and potatoes of this, and my biggest problem with this story is that it's, it's a ping-pong match, that really doesn't have a whole lot behind it. I mean, it's just like, okay, so they get their victory. You know, the Captain America and his forces get their victory, and then they're, you know, they have a setback. And then the Clor, as he became known, shows up. And he kills Goliath. And at that point, everyone should have taken a step back and go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? But no, that just makes everybody who's been kind of acting out of character go further out of character. You know, it's just like, it, it's almost like the, the point where everyone should have taken a, a, a step back and a breath mm -hmm. and reassess the situation is the point where like, nope, nope, that just proves our point. We just got to keep going. And your big finish, your big finish to seven issues, some of which were late, your big finish is to have a bunch of cops and EMT workers tackle Captain America and him go, oh, I've been wrong all this time. Okay, I give up. That's your final issue. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so much about this story that I liked. Unfortunately, so much of that was not within the Civil War series itself. It, it was more, I mean, like, the best thing about Civil War are the issues of Amazing Spider-Man that crossed over into it. Because JMS had a really good handle on what was going on with Peter. And Peter, like, exposing his identity was a big moment, and I actually kind of liked it, but it's all, like, tainted with the knowledge that you know now that the moment they did that, they knew they were going to undo it. Yeah. So it feels really hollow, and 
uh, and I know this is a little inside baseball, also led to a uh, kind of a blow-up between Loeb and Bendis. Oh, uh, Wizard Magazine heard. reported on this, and it, and, and, and it was confirmed by Loeb later. Um, basically, Wizard Magazine was allowed to sit in on one of the planning sessions of, uh, of Civil War, and they're sitting there talking about where to reveal... Peter revealing his identity. Where do you want it? Do you want to do it in Amazing Spider-Man or do you want to do it in Civil War? And uh, Loeb said something about where they should do it. And Bendis pipes up, that's such a DC thing away of doing things. And apparently Loeb lost his shit. <laughs> wow. And just started swearing and they got into a pretty heated exchange. Now, obviously, they worked everything out because they're professionals, but it was just basically one of these. It's like it would be basically like you're sitting there in a in a conference at work and one of your coworkers says something. The other one goes, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, everyone would be like, whoa, wait a second. That escalated quickly. Yeah. And it was the point, and and it's a it's a debate to have, you know. Do you do that in the main series, or do you do that in the character series? You know, does Supergirl die in her own series, or does she die in Crisis Number Seven? Now, to be fair, Supergirl didn't have a series when Crisis Seven came out, but still, you know that that's kind of a major thing to happen. You know, where do you kill Superboy in Infinite Crisis? So. But that's that's beyond that's beyond the point. It's just I just hate the fact that there's so much more of the series I don't like than I do like because it should have been better than it was, and it shouldn't have had that kind of weak sauce ending, you know. And we could sit here and argue all day long about who acted out of character and the fact that Reed Richards is kind of a prick throughout the entire thing. What's kind of his thing, though, Reed Richards is a little bit of a... He's not smarmy about it, but he is a little bit of an intellectual prick. And, you know, the the whole thing with uh, Sue and, and, and Johnny leaving and joining the Resistance and, you know, Ben going off to France, supposedly, uh, though that didn't work out. And, you know, She-Hulk taking the side that she took and... Just, you know, essentially it, what Civil War ultimately was, was the ultimate personification of two Marvel heroes meeting in a warehouse, having a misunderstanding, and fighting about it. And then that fight ultimately going nowhere. Fair enough. You know, yeah, there is a lot of, there is a lot of controversy concerning, I guess, the ending of this thing. And my response to that is always that Civil War is supposed to be a concept and when you basically when you escalate the story to the level at which it gets escalated in in this limited series, there's really no good ending that you can put on the other side of that. That is true. There, there, there's no way to satisfactorily end it to everybody's, you know, to, to, to what's going to please everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there is a conclusion to that. And the fact is the pro-registration forces are going to win. And the reason for that is because they can call in nuclear fucking weapons. When I mean, yeah, if you take everything, every other advantage they have away, you know, uh, what amounts to, I guess, something like a $3 trillion annual budget, uh, you know, every, 
pretty much every superpowered person in the Marvel universe who values his freedom on and on and on. You take all that other stuff away. They got fucking nukes. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be, you know, the, the, the conclusion for this is going to be, if this thing plays out, it, it can't be anything other than them getting nuked. And that's not a story. Shit. That's not a Marvel universe that anybody, that anybody cares, cares to read. And, I'm getting text messages on my phone right now saying that that bolt of lightning actually hit nearby, which is why the thunder was so loud. So, um, Stacy says that she just saw it hit somewhere. So, luckily, it did not hit her. So, yay. But anyway, uh, what I'm saying is, there's no if it if this story doesn't end with the anti-registration forces surrendering then the only logical outcome because there's no way they can win the only logical outcome is is the Mar- is the marvel universe getting basically scorched earth and again this kind of calls back to what we were talking about in the illuminati special wherein this complicates things really more than it simplifies it so i'm willing to overlook the kind of questionable questionable ending Simply because of, you know, the alternative is is worse than all that. Now, as to, you know, characters acting out of character, bear in mind I'm really not the guy to talk to about that considering I'm – this was my introduction to a lot of these characters. And so I'm not really as conversant with the pre-Civil War universe as, you know, people who I think have more of a right to dislike this series than I do. So I'm not going to really get so much into that. But what I will say is that at least as presented in the story, I thought that everybody's agendas and their motives, I thought those things all pretty well lined up internally. Externally, as I say, that's kind of above my pay grade. But internally, it all it all seemed to make sense. And one of the things about this that really made sense, you know, this was a quibble that I think you said that the Leylands had. This is actually one of the things that I found very easy to believe it was nitro that destroyed the elementary school and all of that was hung not not so much on the new warriors i mean they're the catalyst they're not considered the cancer the cancer is the superhero community running around unchecked unregulated and being able to do whatever the hell they want and how many news stories have you ever heard about where the real event wasn't necessarily the cause of the controversy. And I think a a good example that a lot of people are probably familiar with is Rodney King and the beating he took from uh, LAPD. And the fact is there are people out there who maintain that before the camera started rolling, Rodney King had been mouthing off to the police. He'd even, uh, uh, punched a few of them. He was the one that escalated the conflict. But that beating that that was played on news programs all across the country, it became emblematic of not not of people abusing drugs and uh, picking fights with police officers. It instead became emblematic of police brutality. But when you think about it, that's not really what the event was about, but that is what the story, the news story became. And it, and so I, I, 
maybe that's not the best example, but it's just the first one that came to mind. No, it, it, it's it's a good example. You know, not that I want to get into the whole Rodney King thing, you know, in you know, in specific, but it's a good example because while I don't like that it happened, it was probably one of the most realistic things about this story is that with, with how especially post 9-11, um, because every, a lot of people saw a lot of Patriot Act into this story. Uh, I also see, and again, I don't want to get into it too much. I, I, personally, I see a lot of gun control in this story as well. You know, whatever side you happen to fall on with that, Mm -hmm. you can kind of read into this story as well. You know, do we need to regulate these people more, uh, or do we need to kind of let them go? you know, off on their merry way. I think more than anything, and it's the thing that doesn't get talked about, is that it's such a great representation of how the American legislative system treats events like this, where they're not really talking about what happened. They're talking about whatever can bolster their political power at the moment. Um, you know, I, (laughs) this is why I'm a moderate because Mm -hmm. I don't trust either side. Uh, (laughs) I look at all it's like I look at all you fuckers and I don't trust a single one of you really. So but I think, you know, it was one of those things where something like this happens and you force something through faster than you can really implement it. You know, they had the whole big countdown of of when the when the thing went into law, you know, when the registration act went into law. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, it's just like, okay, it's law, and immediately we jump to Patriot breaking the law and getting, you know, taken de- or, you know, having to fight off not just the people he was trying to prevent from committing a crime, but also from the authorities taking him down because he's not doing it the way they want to. And I kind of appreciated that, but at the same time, Miller's not the one to do this, you know? <laughs> Miller may not, you know... And to, but again, to be fair, this is where I keep ping ponging on it. You know, it's not about the registration act. It's about how the characters are reacting to the registration act. You know, well, I guess to if what you want to do is uh, move away, I guess from you know real world ideology. No, I mean we as, could, we could do any. That was the reason why I kept ping ponging back and forth is because that's just how this story makes me feel inside. Well, so. and, and fair enough. And keep in mind, I mean. Uh, Bailey, I know what people on Facebook think my ideology is, but, uh, you know, guys, nothing I put on Facebook is real. (laughs) Just keep that in mind. But, or at least not all of it. But, you know, there, I'm going to try to find a way to say this tactfully because I know that I've got listeners who are left, right, center, up, down. Uh, they're they're all over the place, and so I, I don't be... trust the down people. They just they make me they make me they creep me out. But well, well yeah, well they're beady little heads, uh, beady little eyes, and bouncing heads and everything. Just fuck them. But anyway, the uh, when the Patriot Act was getting, let's face it, slammed through Congress, I remember warning my conservative friends and telling them that guys, sooner or later sooner, I think, we're going to elect a Democrat president. Now, 
is this power you want the other side to have? And to the Democrats, what I tried to t ask was, well, how, how would you feel if some future Democrat administration had this level of power? Would you still oppose it? And to me, that's kind of what separates the men from the boys. I mean, is this is your support or for that matter, resistance to the, uh, to this law, to this act? Is this principle or is it partisan? And one of the things that that fiction can do by changing the argument or not so much changing the argument by changing the context you can sometimes see things with a little bit better clarity. I don't know why that is, but there's something magical that happens. There's this weird alchemy that takes place where fictional conflicts have a funny way of sussing out the fine details of the, I guess like the underlying principles of your, your worldview. And at least as it goes for, for the Patriot Act, you know, what, you know, basically what the the residents of the Marvel Universe, the, the reality that they're having to deal with. Nobody put this to a vote. Nobody ever asked for their opinion. They were never given a choice in the matter. They live in a world filled to overflowing with superheroes who are running around doing whatever the fuck they want. And some of them are really good at their job. I mean, I'm at a severe loss in all of the Daredevil comics that I've ever read, I'm at a severe loss to think of a time when I can look back and say, you know what? Daredevil fucked up. He should have done X, but instead he did Y. Something diametrically opposite of what he should have done. I'm not saying that issue doesn't exist. I'm simply saying I've never read it. But you get the other the other end of the scale where, hell, I think the, the death of Gene DeWolf is a good example of an instance where Spider-Man wasn't – he wasn't as on top of his – in that case, it was his emotions. He was not as on top of his emotions as he should have been. So as a, uh, as a direct result of that, he almost beat the Sin Eater into a bloody pulp. And then he, he tried kicking ass on Daredevil a little bit before Daredevil was luckily able to put him down. And these are people who are not necessarily – there is no school that you can go to in the Marvel Universe that, that, that will say, hey, this is how you can use your powers. The very closest that there is to something like that, ironically enough, is mutants, the most threatened – uh, members of the Marvel Universe, they're the ones that are going so far out of their way to police themselves and their own. A theme I'm going to be coming back to in just a moment. That someone doing what Spider-Man does, it's entirely possible that he's going to cause a shitload of, of other problems. And the thing of it is, there's no oversight to that. None whatsoever. He can do whatever the hell he wants to do. And at the end of the day he's always going to be able to hide behind his own anonymity. And as far as the people in the Marvel Universe are concerned, they have no assurance that he's on the side of the angels. He could be doing things that fit his agenda, but thanks to J. Jonah Jameson's, his own sort of personal crusade against Spider-Man, the members of the Marvel Universe, the people that live there, the man on the street, he's got legit reasons not necessarily to not necessarily trust Spider-Man. Now, you and I know more about the full story when it comes to Spider-Man, so we can see where they're wrong. 
but at least in universe, I think the people who live there, they've got kind of a point to stand on. And this is not to speak of the fact that it seems like every couple of weeks, Stilt Man comes to town and tears up Manhattan. And then what do you do? Or Hulk goes on a rampage in Las Vegas. And then what do you do? And who are these people? And who are they answerable to? You know, uh, who? where's their internal affairs? You know, who who holds them accountable? And the real answer to that is nobody. And in Civil War number one, what we see is a situation where, you know, I think the new warriors might have been well within their rights to call for police backup, maybe have the Avengers just do a quick pass by, you know, make sure that things are going the way that they need to. But those things all got overruled because of the fact that they're they're doing a reality TV show. And that's no good for ratings. So it didn't happen. And I guess what I'm saying is I can I can understand where the people in the the residents, the you know Joe Sixpack man on the street Marvel Marvel Universe resident, the guy who has his city block destroyed a couple of times a week by superheroes beating the shit out of each other, I can understand where he's coming from. But then you get into the civil libertarian argument where, you know. Do people or do people not have the right to have freedom of mobility? I mean, must they live their lives under the microscope of, of, I guess, government oversight? And I personally feel like, you know what, philosophical questions like that, this, the Marvel Universe, so much more than the DC Universe, is the place where you can ask that question and tell that story. And... Anyway, that's just the way that I, the, the way that I view it. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge and even agree with, you know, flaws and things that people have with, that people point out in in these in these stories and say, well, you know, this is kind of bullshit because of X, Y, and Z. But you know, at the end of the day, it just, I find the 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 I. I this sort of conflict between principles. Number one, I find that just really fascinating. But number two, I find it really persuasive. I mean, of, of course, of all people, the mutants are going to have a little bit of a point of view. Oh, so now you guys want to talk to us. Now that it's your ass on the line, all of a sudden, <laughs> now you want our numbers, you fucking dicks. And you have people like Ms. Marvel who, you know, based on what, uh, what I've read of her title, of course she's going to want to register. I mean, she would never be on the side of the anti-registration. She wants to be enshrined in the system. Of course she's going to be pro-registration. Why wouldn't she be? Makes all the sense in the world. The mutants, they're going to be opposed to it. Or there are they'll be as opposed to it as they can get away with. I mean, they don't want to get blown off the map. So <laughs> officially they're neutral. Unofficially, they're just like, well, fuck all of you guys. And Tony Stark, he's the guy that knows, number one, what the alternatives are. It doesn't have to be a law. They could have just rounded us all up and sent us off to prison camps. We're getting off light, guys. This is a good deal. Take it. Over and against, I guess, the... this. I've always kind of regarded this as quintessentially American. This is something I don't know that Europeans especially completely understand, this idea of independence. Captain America, of all people, is going to be anti-registration. I find that extremely 
believable on his part. Not, and I don't mean this from you know some kind of bullshit libertarian party idealist kind of way. I mean it more from the standpoint of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The government does not have the right effectively to own me. There, there are no, there's no bizarro world out there where my government has the right to tell me what's what. Fuck you guys. And I don't know. I mean, I just find all of these different conflicts and disagreements and agendas and different motives. And I, I find all of this very simple. And one of the things that I think is the kind of the lasting legacy of civil war is that there is no easy answer to to this question, you know, are you pro-registration or anti-registration? The way it's framed in the story, you can be an asshole who's pro-registration and you can be an even bigger asshole who's anti-registration. It's not necessarily a black and white issue. You know, this entire story, all of these characters, the, the entire conflict, all of this is one huge shade of gray. And ultimately, that's what works for me because, you know, there are times in life when I'm sorry, it is a it is a very binary choice. There is a right and there is a wrong in a situation like this. I'm sorry, I just don't think there is a simple yes or no that you can give. Uh, what do you think? I um, I think when when you're talking about the story on a philosophical oh. level, there are it, it is it, it is fascinating because you're right when you boil everything down, the story basically sums up as does the government have the right to say you're a danger, you're a potential danger. So you either get with our program or you don't do anything with your ability at all ability at all. Uh, you know, I, I can sit here all day and talk about how, well, they shouldn't tell this story in the first place. You know, and, and you shouldn't look too deeply on it and stop picking the fridge and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, if we're going to deal with it, we're going to deal with it. And I completely agree with you. Captain America will always be the person to stand up for the ideals of America, not for the American establishment. Right. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest mis mis misunderstandings of the character is they understand, they think that just because he has America in his name, he's going to support everything that the administration tells him to essentially because America is not the federal government. America is not even really the state government. America is the people and that's where Captain America is going to lie. And, you know, when you, when you talk about civil liberties and again, uh, you know, not in the libertarian, you know, you should, you know, if you don't have fire insurance, you know, if your house catches on fire, the fire department then just needs to make sure that nobody else's house catches on fire, which I've heard before and kind of look at and go, wow. Yeah, there's extremes in every party. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, going down to the basic fundamentals of civil liberty is, you know, who has the right to tell me what to do with my with myself, you know, but at the same time, there is, you know, what is good for the, you know, the country as a whole, you know, just because you have Ebola doesn't mean you get to wander the streets because you're going to give everybody else Ebola. You know, that's, that's a, that's a crappy way to put it, but it, it's also the simplest way I can think of explaining it. Like at some point you have, you know, you know, when do we make that decision to either quarantine or regulate something? 
And I, I kind of just wish they would have focused more on that in this story and less on um, having, you know, having the, I don't know how to say this, the fights. Because mm-hmm. it seemed like the main reason they wanted to tell this story was to show a bunch of superheroes fighting each other. Yes. I don't think any of them were real. I mean, I'm sure in their meeting, when they were coming up with this, all of this was discussed. But end of the day, Mark Miller was telling a story where Steve McNiven was showing Iron Man and Captain America beating the hell out of each other. And, you know, Captain America punching the Punisher and all that kind of stuff. And to be fair, that's, you know, again, that's kind of what the Marvel Universe is. But if they would have had the action but still managed to talk about the larger issues in a more nuanced sort of way, I think I would have liked the story more. Hmm. You know, it's it's one of those weird things where I can dislike so much of it and still kind of like the idea behind it. And it, 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 it creates this kind of thing where, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be one of these. Here's a good example. X3 as a movie gets is one of those punching bags for comic book fandom and films. Wrongly so, I would say, but go ahead. You know, when, when everyone was like, well, it did suck like X-Men 3 sucked. And it just comes to the point where that becomes accepted fact, where I think that film has many, many faults. But there's also parts of that film where I'm like, wow, I really like that. I mean, uh, I don't remember leaving the theater from X3 and being as disappointed as I was when I left the theater for Superman Returns. God, yes. I mean, so it's just one of those things where, you know, Civil War has the reputation that it's just about a bunch of people fighting, and it was Mark Miller doing what Mark Miller does. And to a certain extent, that's correct. But at the same time, I am going to look at it and try to give it a fair shake. You know, do I think characters were acting out of character? Well, yes. And here's the thing. That is an argument that you have to qualify every single time you make it. Mm-hmm. Because none of us act the same way all the time. And if you're going to have a story, you're going to have to have the characters acting, quote unquote, out of character for the story to happen. Otherwise, it's boring. Everyone is going to go paint by the numbers and there's no excitement to it. You know, when I... Here's a DC example. When I was 14, Clark Kent quit the Daily Planet, went to work for the Newstime building, was acting like a jackass. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was yeah. acting out of character. You know why? Because something was happening. And it was later explained what was happening, and everything got sorted out. That's where drama and conflict comes from. So, yes, you're going to have Iron Man and Captain America on different sides of this issue. Tony Stark, I got to say, him being a futurist and wanting to get in front of this makes sense to me because he wants to, you know, he's the one, you know, at least in terms of the story, he's the one that's like, well, I'm going to save these people by protecting them. You know, I think one of the things that get lost gets lost in this story is that at the end of the day, Tony Stark was trying to protect his friends by getting them to agree with this first. Now, is that right? I don't think so, but... I think, you know, his path to hell was paved with good intentions. So if we would have focused more on that and less on 
them acting, Steve and Tony acting as like two dimensional representations of both sides of the issue, I would have enjoyed it more. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, it is so funny to see um, a comic series try to deal with a real life issue and it end up being about as much of a mess as the real life issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. You know, as you were talking, one of the ideas that I had was when I did the House of M episode with Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame, one of the things that he and I seemed to pretty much agree on was that Mark Miller or somebody of his ilk, that's who should have written House of M. Because here you had Bendis wanting to turn this into a little bit of a, a little bit of a character-driven personal story, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just is House of M really the vehicle to do something like that? I don't think so. On the other divide, what you have is Civil War written by Mark Miller. Now, in your semi-professional opinion. Might Civil War have benefited from being written by Bendis or perhaps Jeff Loeb or someone else, someone who could have taken this essential concept? But I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 I kind of agree with you that <laughs> words that I never thought I would say. I think Bendis may have sh- should have probably have written this. Um, or JMS. I mean. Oh, yeah. Uh, just because, you know, it seems like I'm slagging off on Mark Miller. Uh, but again, that's because I don't think, I think he lacks subtlety as a writer and that is very much on purpose. So how do you criticize somebody? It's like criticizing Andrew Dice Clay for telling, uh, dirty nursery rhyme jokes. It's kind of what the guy became known for. How do you, how do you criticize somebody for, you know, to call back to one of our earlier conversations, what do you expect from a pig, but a grunt, you know? (laughs) So, you know, criticizing him for that seems a little unnecessary, but at the same time, when you, when you hand him a story like this, like you said, is he the writer to do this? You know, would it have benefited from a brew baker or, you know, or another writer of that caliber? I think, I think Bendis would have done well with it. The problem is, is that, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a Bendis major crossover that I walked away from, you know, well, secret, well, secret invasion was kind of fat in the middle. Uh, so, but then again, this is a story that would have benefited from an issue or two of people kind of hashing things out. So God, I I think I'm going to agree with you on that. Hmm. Well, I at least wanted to float float the possibility here. Now, I mentioned uh, Nitro just a while ago. That's going to come up in a in another episode, but I do think it would be inaccurate to say that he's completely forgotten about. He is completely forgotten about in this limited series. There's no question about that. But I I just don't think that he was completely overlooked. In the event, at no, because Wolverine went after him. 
See, here I was trying to talk around that, and you go and blow it. Okay, well, anyway, so, well, yeah, Wolverine went after him. I'm not saying how it happened or, you know, talking <laughs> about the fact that in the middle of it, Galactus showed up and took Nitro and made him his new Herald. I mean, I didn't say that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, him and a time-displaced Napoleon, they all went back in time. Yeah. <laughs> What an event that was. Now, now I have this image of Nitro and Galactus <laughs> sitting on top of the phone booth with Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon inside. <laughs> oh, that would be the worst comic ever. Or I would buy possibly it. the greatest. I don't know. Well, I, I things like that, there are instances where I think the Punisher versus Archie effect uh, comes into play where there's a concept that's so fucking ridiculous that number one, you can't walk away. And number two, you might actually be able to do something that with that, that's got some real disco potential. And I speak very highly here of Archie versus Punisher, because that was a great friggin' comic. Somebody yeah. made it work. Somebody took that concept and made it work. How and, the, I mean, look, a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters for a thousand years could never have done it. But somehow, against all odds, that comic belongs in everybody's collection. And I don't mean from, like, an absurd point of view. I mean, because it really is a fun story, you know? And, I don't know, tons of fun. And, but that's another episode for another time. But to, I, I guess, you know, to the issues, so to speak, at hand, you know, it's, it's funny. We've done so much talking about the writing. And, you know, I think that by itself is a, at least something of a testament to the the mojo that, that this, this concept has to it, that there's so mm -hmm. much that you can say. And, you know, even the people who like this story less than I do, and I love this. I mean, I love this whole, this whole event from beginning to end. I love how you get at times the same event, the same sort of moment that's shown in different issues and from different points of view I speak here of Peter Parker revealing his secret identity. And yeah, in retrospect, that is kind of cheapened by the fact that they knew as they were doing it, they were going to hit the friggin' reset button on that. I'm not okay with that. But one of the things that I found, honestly, on the reread, it did kind of annoy me was the ping pong effect that they played with uh, Peter's affiliation, you mm -hmm. know, that, Number one, he would he would change sides, and that number two, once he did, that the anti-registration people would be so quick to welcome him. Now, that needs to happen for narrative convenience, and so I and so I I go with it. But if you look at it from a strictly rational point of view, I mean, somebody defecting to the other side, somebody from the anti-registration side going over to the pro-registration side, I think the pro-registration side would. As a show of good faith, they would welcome that person with open arms and treat him as an equal. I don't think that's true in reverse. I'm sorry. The anti-registration -reg side, they've got too much to lose. I mean, this is their freedom. This is their life. It's, I mean, this is a ball game for them. And like I say, I understand, at least I think I understand, that from a pacing standpoint, you've got to get past that. I just don't think it would be quite so easy. I I don't think that the anti-registration side, the secret Avengers, whatever you want to call them, <clears throat> I don't think they'd be so quick to, to welcome Spider-Man, who, who up to that point had been kind of the poster child for, for cooperation and 
I guess the pro-registration sentiment, oh. I don't think it would be so easy. Extending further back, he was in Tony Stark's hip pocket from really early on into the new Avengers. I mean, there was the storyline of Tony giving him the Iron Spider outfit mm-hmm. and then, you know, the the prelude story, which I really liked. And I will say that Civil War is one of those things that for me personally, sometimes the crossovers were more engaging and entertaining than the actual main story. Oh, the zero hour effect, yeah. Yeah, because the Amazing Spider-Man issues that crossed over with Civil War were really good. Yes. Like, artistically and writing, it was top-notch across the board. JMS did more to explore... Because he had the room to. So I'll be fair on that one. Uh, But he had the room to explore Peter's psyche and why he's doing what he's doing. You know, end of the day, Peter does everything he does to protect his aunt. And when it goes down, it goes down. And this is why the novelization doesn't have as big an impact. Because in the novelization, it's the post-brand-new-day Marvel U. So Peter and MJ aren't married. And I'm sorry, there is more dramatic potential in I've got to get my wife and mother figure out of the White House uh, (laughs) safely while I am committing treason than I just got to hide my aunt because stuff. I don't know. I just but uh, I think where you're going with this is Steve McNiven's art. Yeah. And look, I'm. I don't know Steve McNiven from anything else. This is literally the only work of his that I've ever seen. His work, and I'm not gonna, I'm I'm not gonna obscure the fact that the coloring is crucial, and all of this. It's the coloring. I think it it deserves cover credit. I mean, I think in a great many cases, a lot of colorists, it's all very, not to draw a pun, very paint by numbers. Here, the coloring is a vital part of the art. It's as it's every bit as expressive and and as important as anything that's that was um, drawn by McNiven. But that having been said, McNiven's art, this to me is what comic book art should be. Like at its best, in a superhero type of setting, this is what comic book art should be. You know, because we've all seen those comic book artists that they can draw. Uh, let's just run with Scott McDaniel. Scott McDaniel can do an amazing Nightwing and has. And I seem to be the lone voice in the wilderness on this. I think he does an amazing Batman. Scott McDaniel's Superman, not so much. It was it, whatever it is that that informs McDaniel's artistic sensibility and his power as a... Uh, as a comic book artist, it doesn't, those values and those philosophies just don't work for Superman. And, and that's just one example. I'm not trying to pick on Scott McDaniel. I'm just trying to use that as an example to say that we all know an artist who, God bless him. He just, he, his style is not necessarily appropriate for everything. I mean, Norm Brayfogle does for my money, the definitive Batman, I don't really care to see his Superman, to be honest with you. That's not an issue here with Civil War and Steve McNiven's art, where everybody 
Every character in here looks amazing. I literally would not change a thing, at least as far as the art's concerned. Uh, where are you on all this? I My only problem with Niven is that he couldn't keep a regular schedule. Uh, I don't really have a problem with his art per se because it's very much of the marvel of this time period. So McNiven was kind of the house style almost. Yes. Uh, you know, he was chosen because he has a, a very illustrative, I wouldn't say realistic, but, you know, he can make characters look dynamic. Um, you know, I, I can't even really argue with his storytelling because, you know, all the characters... You know, you see the emotion on their faces and you can kind of follow along. Uh, so, you know, the art. To me, art, unless it is either really good or somebody I really like, it has to be terrible for me to really notice it. And I know that's weird, but I'm a story guy first. Uh, you know, that's where I fall on the, uh, you know, the the comic book, you know, Venn diagram. You know, I, I like story and then I like art. Whereas some people like them both together, or some people are more art people and story second or whatever. So I think uh, I, I think he was the right person for this project because he brought to it what Marvel wanted to be brought to it. I don't think, uh, you know, it would have been interesting to see Bagley or David Finch. Well, not David Finch. David Finch. Oh, yeah, I was going to no, say that. Yeah. <laughs> no cut that sorry don't cut it but just just forget that because forever evil was so uneven uh you know he would have been the wrong choice but you know like bagley or uh you know even i don't even think diodato at this point who was knocking the park knocking it out of the park in new avengers you know really would have been the better choice i think mcniven was the right one to go with because he had a good handle on all the characters uh, Peter Parker looked 12 in that one issue, but eh, I'm not going to really argue with that too much. Agreed. Overall, like, I guess overall, what are you, we're coming up on uh, on 10 years since this. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> How's that for making you feel old, huh? Uh, we, we will be 10 years by the time this comes out. Yeah, no, that's true. You're right. Okay, yeah, well, so 10 years later... Considering that how much has changed with the Marvel Universe, you know, again, taking the thousand-foot view of all of this, should this story have been told, or might might the powers that were at Marvel Comics, maybe they should have put the dice back down on the table? What are your thoughts? Going from Avengers Disassembled to Siege... I think it's one of the most dynamic periods in Marvel. In re, you know, they did with they did what they needed to do. Marvel had a plan, and Marvel stuck with it. Uh, I totally think this story was worth telling because I liked some of the initiative stuff that came from it, and from the initiative went into Secret Invasion. And, you know, and people complained, oh, it just goes into this, it goes into this, but you know what? Marvel made that work in a way I don't think DC ever did in the same time period, if you're going to compare the two. No. Uh, Marvel made this, you know, I got to respect them because they pulled the trigger on this 
and they kept with it for years. They didn't put the genie in the bottle at the very end. Oh, the, the there is no registration act, and everyone's going back to the way they were, you know, they were before. They had the courage of their convictions, for lack of a better term, to stick with it. So I totally think it was worth it. It could have been done better, but I think it, it, all in all, they did what they needed to do and made it enough of an event that you wanted to stick with it afterwards just to see what happens next. And I think where the where that train ended was Siege. Because Siege is where really everything gets resolved almost from this and you move on to something else so that everything that came after it, Fear Itself, Original Sin, yeah. Avengers versus X-Men, they all felt like they were trying to recapture what they had here and just could never do it. I tend to agree with that. One of the major gripes that I had against Fear Itself was that it, it came off like Marvel was... I forget what it was for uh, Fear Itself, but for Civil War, they had a tie-in miniseries, a really good one, called Frontline. Mm-hmm. And it was the sort of... I wouldn't go so far for as... For that last issue where I wanted to punch somebody, but still. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, but again, I mean, it, it, that again leads us back down the rabbit hole of how do you end something like that. But, you know, the, I really enjoyed it, and it was basically... I wouldn't go so far as to call it a detective story, but it was supposed to present sort of the man on the street perspective from the mm-hmm. standpoint of Ben Urich, and I forget the other character's name, but some chick. And on that basis, I consider it to be very artistically successful. And Fear Itself had a very similar type of concept, you know, the man on the street angle of Fear Itself. And it just didn't work at all. And... I almost feel like Civil War was kind of a special case that the the ramifications of the main premise of Civil War are so far-reaching that I'm convinced you could you could publish nothing but monthly comics, you know, fuck the limited series, fuck the one-shots, all that stuff, just forget about it. Try telling all of this stuff just in monthly in in your monthly titles without creating anything new like they did with Siege. I don't think that's going to be quite enough to cover everything that was covered in all in these various limited series and one-shots and spin-offs and all of these other sorts of things. It, this is just too too big a concept to be confined to just the monthly titles. Fear itself, I think it's got the opposite problem. I mean, when you get away from maybe the... In fact, I would say even the limited series itself, come to think of it. I mean, that's really Thor's story. You could have... You could have put that in the monthly title, Thor, and I don't think the universe itself would have, or the story at least, would have been any the worse for wear. So, I don't know. I mean, it, it it's almost like there was a formula that Marvel felt obliged to use, and there came a point when it, after Civil War, it just wasn't appropriate for everything. And, again, the best example for that that I'm always going to use is going to be um, Fear Itself. So... I don't know. Maybe different people have different perceptions on all of that, but that's that's my view. And so now, how 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 are you doing on time? Uh, I do kind of have to wrap it up, unfortunately. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to get to uh, the confession anyway, so that's fine. 
Now, before I let you go, and I, I know you're short on time, but before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you? Well, you can go over to fortressofbailytude.com, which is my Superman blog, uh, where I talk about various things, mostly post-crisis Superman. It's also the, the main base these days for From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor, that... Um, that where we are going through the post-crisis history of Superman. Uh, you can also go over to viewsfromthelongbox.com and check out that show. Uh, it's uh, you really never. It is the box of chocolates of comic book podcasting. You never know what you're going to get. Uh, it might be John Wilson and I talking about Spawn. It might be talking about the fact that I just lost my job. Um, somehow I'm able to maintain an audience doing that. I don't know how that's possible, but you know miracles do happen. <laughs> uh, also there you can find links to my other shows like Tales of the JSA, Comics Monthly Monday and every, now it's Tuesday it used to be Monday night uh, but every Tuesday night at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time I am on Radio KAL Live with Steve Eunice over at the Superman homepage where we talk about the latest news in the world of Superman Awesome Well I just want to thank you again for for joining in on this again you've elevated this episode i think far and above what it would have been otherwise so you've got my gratitude on that and i think that's pretty much it for me this week now as to next week i'm going to be talking about ms marvel numbers six through eight basically the civil war tie-ins and also miscellaneous and sundry one shots joined once again by mr michael bailey and that i think is going to be pretty much it for right now so thank you all bye everybody i will see you next week in need of some relaxation? Is the pressure getting to him? Well then, we've got great news for you. Here at Magnus Doggy Brobble, we have over 1,000 bitches in heat to help your dog relax. For just $300, your little guy can get the happy ending you only wish that you could get. We have all different kinds of breeds to satisfy your furry roommate. Labradors for those who need some all-American love. Shizu for those who prefer something a bit more exotic. Why, we even have Doberman Pinchers if anybody likes it rough. And this weekend, we're offering a discounted special. Two bitches at the same time. And this won't cost you a million dollars either. Get two for the price of one for your studly pet. So, bring your furry buddy to Magnus Doggy Brothel. Our facilities are licensed for the finest and doggy pleasure that you'll ever find. Why, just check out all the rave reviews we've gotten on Yelp. 
Magnus Doggy Brothel. Because a bang is always better than a whimper, right? Right? Am I right? Enter at your own risk. Patent pending. Magnus Doggy Brothel is a subsidiary of DeMonzo Happy Ending Ventures. Not responsible for loss or injury. Subject to terms and conditions. Void where prohibited. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And... You know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Walks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>